0: The economy is terrible, but hey, we're doing pretty good. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Monday, April 24th, and this is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, we look at how people perceive the economy versus the reality. Rick Kaler returns to the program. We'll talk about the emotions of money How it can change everything about how we interpret the news and view our own personal financial situation. We'll talk about a program out of Spearfish that seeks to bring more STEM teachers to rural schools. We revisit a day not so long ago when a single monarch butterfly arrived in South Dakota pretty early. Plus, we'll talk about the gap in knowledge that might be fueled by how we teach reading. And we've got some poetry for you later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Well, if you've been tuned in all morning, you heard today's 1A broadcast. It featured the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, the Lakota Music Project, and Shostakovich in South Dakota. Later this week, you'll be able to click and read Stu Whitney's coverage of the orchestra and maestro Delta David Geyer. Stu is a reporter with South Dakota Newswatch. He joins me now on the phone with a preview. Stu, welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Lori. good to be with you.
0: Tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up and why you decided to focus on it now.
1: Well, I mean, as you well know, there's a lot of momentum uh, building up for the South Dakota Symphony. There's a lot of storylines that are sort of weaving around uh, the season finale that's coming up on April 29th. A lot of it stemmed from some of the national attention that they got with the uh, New Yorker article uh, in May of 2022. But I really wanted to sit down with, uh, with David, Delta David Geyer, and, and really kind of understand what kind of makes him tick. And, you know, a lot of people just saw him as the assistant conductor from the New York Philharmonic and thought he was maybe some stuffy Manhattan uh, maestro. And there's a lot more to him with his, his upbringing and what ended up being some of his motivations when he came to Sea Falls uh, almost 20 years ago. In terms of wanting to explore the community and what what a symphony means to its community, and uh, as it turned out, uh, he he really meant it, and he wanted to uh, explore the community at, actually as the entire state, which meant going out to the reservations and meeting some of the uh, uh, Native American uh, leaders, not just not just musically, but otherwise. And I know you've done some great reporting on the Lakota Music Project. And some of that is stemming and stretching into their brid- bridging cultures, which is going to explore potential partnerships with other uh, or with some refugee communities. And so uh, there's a lot, a lot of it goes with what his motivations were and how he has followed through all those in the, in the past couple of decades.
0: Yeah. Take us back for people who are just now paying attention, even our our national listeners. Who is this guy?
1: Well, I mean, he—it's it's t- actually tough to pin down from the beginning because he traveled around quite a bit. His father was a was a professor, uh, had a lot of visiting professorships. So uh, David actually lived in about five or six different states growing up, and uh, uh, ended up staying with his his aunt and uncle in the Ozarks, believe it or not, which was not what he considered to be a, a musical hotbed, unless you play the unless you play the banjo, as he pointed out to me, uh, but. He met some people there that introduced him to classical music. Uh, he, he discovered, he, he started out as a trumpet and piano player. And uh, when he took a conducting class in grad school, uh, the first time he was on the podium and held the baton, he sort of had an epiphany that this was, is this was what he wanted to do. And so, you know, in speaking to him, and speaking to his wife, Angela, and speaking to a lot of the people that were part of his uh, sort of musical, musical odyssey to this point, uh, he, he was growing incrementally and was kind of wondering whether he was up to the standards of some of these conductors that had gone to these uh, more elite musical schools uh, before heading to some of these uh, summer festivals like uh, in, in Interlock and in Aspen and Tanglewood. And so he, he said he's still there's still a little bit of that, you know, trying to sort of prove he belongs. And I think he's, uh, I think he's reinforced that and sort of proved that pretty well here with what he's been able to achieve in South Dakota, which many people consider to be flyover country and not uh, um, not an arts-based area. But he has brought national attention to the symphony.
0: So much of that work depends on and pivots around the community connection. It's not just a performance. It's about relationships and friendships and and figuring out how an orchestra can be of service to community. Tell me what you found in that regard, in the sense that people feel this deep tapestry, which is is woven in. It's not just a place where you sit in the concert hall and see a show.
1: Yeah, I think he really wanted it to be sort of a collaboration between uh, conductor and orchestra and community, and, and, and he didn't want as you noted, people just to show up and two hours later walk out and just say, well, that was great entertainment, and then go on with their lives. He wanted there to be some sort of effect on people. And as he said to me, uh, you know, he wants you to be think, leaving the concert hall, not thinking of yourself but, but others and, and some of the things that have been brought to the fore uh, during that performance. A lot of that in his mind, and this is another uh, theme that comes out in the stories is his championing and highlighting contemporary American composers He doesn't believe that classical music, he doesn't believe that symphony productions should just be, uh, the old war horse, uh, composers that, uh, that maybe, maybe some patrons expect to hear all the time. Uh, your Beethoven and Mozart and Tchaikovsky. And he, he wanted to go beyond that. And there were actually some grumbles, uh, early on in his tenure from some, from some who felt like they wanted to, they didn't want to be challenged to that degree. And, um, But he has really sort of been vindicated vindicated by that because the New Yorker article came about because of uh, just one of those uh, contemporary composers, John Luther Adams, who uh, David uh, nurtured a relationship with. And it led to John Luther Adams debuting or having a world premiere of his piece in Atlas of Deep Deep Time uh, in South Dakota in 2022. invited Alex Ross, the uh, esteemed music critic of The New Yorker, uh, to that production. So Alex Ross uh, was here to listen to that piece, not necessarily to listen to the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, uh, but he was so struck by what he saw in terms of some of the things you've already alluded to with the the community connection. Uh, It was a 20th anniversary uh, celebration in connection to that, so they were honoring a lot of these longtime musicians. Uh, the honored librarian, librarian who had been with the symphony for uh, almost half a century. And Alex Ross was sort of taken by a lot of this and ended up writing. I mean, he still covered the premiere, but he also wrote quite a bit about the South Dakota Symphony and ended up calling it one of America's boldest orchestras,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which has been sort of a boon to the, uh, to the organization. And they've kind of been riding that momentum ever since.
0: So do you remember, Stu, back in the days when uh, they were down at the, you know, <laughs> whatever building they were in? I think it's the one that's the multicultural center now. The acoustics were terrible. The funding wasn't great. And and now we really see people waking up not only around the nation, but donors waking up and saying, wait a minute, this, this money, if I donate to this orchestra, could have real impact. Because this is also about growth. What did uh, you learn about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of peaks and valleys. You mentioned them playing at the old Coliseum. They also played at Sioux Falls Arena. Uh, du Su Kim, who's the uh, master violinist who I interviewed, talked about smelling uh, popcorn and beer uh, in the uh-huh. Sioux Falls Arena when they played there. When she had just recently arrived from Korea, and she didn't, it, it didn't, for obvious reasons, did not feel like a concert hall to her. Uh, Henry Charles Smith, uh, one of the previous composer or uh, conductors, had. A pretty large role in trying to get the, uh, get the pavilion built, which kind of changed the the arts and culture scene um, in, in the city and state. But you know, then you got you had the financial crisis, you had the Great Recession, uh, yeah. 2008, 2010. Uh, Symphony, quite frankly, almost ceased to exist during that time. I talked about that in my story. Um, a lot of the board members had to sort of rally around some of the influential uh, donors and community members and and just sort of re-emphasize to them the value of having uh, a symphony orchestra in town. And it's not just a philosophical thing. A lot of it is uh, commerce-based. When you have a Sanford and a Vera, they're trying to lure surgeons, they're trying to hire surgeons to come here or any high-end profession. They want to know what the cultural scene is. They want to know if their child could be in the – uh, have a youth orchestra, um, and so a lot of these corporate donors. I mean, we, we 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 talk a lot about the private individual donors, but corporate donors are obviously a huge part of this, and for somewhat uh selfish reasons, they they want uh the, the cultural scene in Sioux Falls and South Dakota to be strong, and so so I'm, I'm going to jump in round here,
0: Stuke, and, and just let sure. let listeners know that um. We're going to have Delta David Geyer and one of the featured composers from their upcoming season finale on our show on Thursday. Jackie Hendry will host that. And, Stu, when can people find your piece when it drops on uh, SD Newswatch? What day okay, would that
1: be? so, I mean, the first thing I would suggest people do is go to South Dakota Newswatch uh, website and put in their email address, so that way this stuff can just come directly in your inbox. Otherwise, uh, you can go to the website, and the story comes out on Thursday. Uh, you can check out the social media channels, uh, South News NewsWatch on Facebook or Twitter, um, or follow me uh, at Stu Whitney on Twitter, and uh, we will be uh, we'll be putting it out there.
0: All right, thanks so much for stopping by and giving us a preview. We appreciate your time. All right, Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The teacher shortage is impacting classrooms across the nation, but rural schools are especially feeling the pain. Well, a $75,000 grant will help one South Dakota university address just that. The grant will fund the project Building Capacity to Address STEM Educator Shortages in Rural South Dakota, that's at Black Hills State University, and Dr. Ben Saylor is leading that project. He's with me now from SDPB's Sue W. White Studio at Black Hills State. Hey, Ben, welcome, thanks for being here.
2: Good afternoon, Lori, thanks for having me.
0: All right, all officially, Dr. Saylor, what would you like to tell us about this project? <laughs> tell me a little bit about the, the need, first of all, that, it, that what needs to be addressed, what's urgent here?
2: Well, so maybe the first thing to start with is that this is a planning grant. And Mm -hmm. so part of our planning effort is to better understand the need and needs, maybe plural, in rural school districts, in tribal communities, across our region, across Western South Dakota. We understand anecdotally that school districts are finding it challenging to find math and science teachers at the secondary levels. Um, and we know that Black Hill State University is producing uh, secondary teachers in math and science, but not as many as we feel like we could and that we could benefit the region and perhaps beyond by preparing more. But the National Science Foundation has awarded us $75,000 to do a deeper dive into into understanding what are the needs and have it be not just anecdotal and, and, uh, and also to, to uh, talk with our alumni, with our current students in teacher preparation, with the school districts again themselves about what are their needs um, in the preparation that teachers receive as their, when they're in their undergraduate time and also as they transition into, um, into their first year of teaching, second year of teaching uh, within a school district.
0: So this seems to me like a particularly challenging cycle to unravel or unspool because if you don't have a great uh, teacher and you grew up in rural South Dakota, you head off to Black Hills State, maybe you don't even know that's what you want to do because you haven't had an example. Now you might not have the strong foundation that you need for the rigors of college, and yet we really need you to become a great STEM teacher and go back into rural spaces and, and change that? How do you get your mind wrapped around all of that?
2: Well, that, that's what we're trying to do, and I agree with you, it's a, it's a big challenge. Um, we do, we actually have a, a much larger grant from the National Science Foundation that has just started this year to provide scholarships for students from these same communities to come to Black Hill State to major in math and science. And, um, and we've pursued this teacher education grant now from the National Science Foundation because we, we want to be bringing in uh, students who have an interest in math and science. But then once they're here, uh, we want to nurture that interest in math and science. But if they have an interest in teacher education, we want to provide that opportunity as well. And the National Science Foundation has um, funding to provide scholarships so that students aren't coming out at least with significant debt. And We know that if a a student is coming in with a financial challenge to get through college to begin with, and then if the potential to their earning potential is is potentially not as high in uh, becoming a teacher as it could be in some other professions, we don't want that to be a a limiting factor, or we want to minimize that barrier as much as possible.
0: Yeah. Do you have a, a personal story where you feel like did someone do this for you in the in the past? I guess is what I'm wondering.
2: Well, I, I've lived in South Dakota for 24 years, but mm-hmm. I am not a native South Dakotan. And so I, I didn't come from a, I came from a um, metropolitan area. Yeah. And my math and science teachers were extremely important in, in my um, trajectory in going into the fields of math and science and ultimately getting a doctorate in those fields. Uh, but then I transitioned soon after completing my doctorate into wanting to work with teachers to help make that more of a possibility. I mean, so that more teachers would be prepared and well prepared and see that as a um, viable and rewarding uh, career pathway.
0: Yeah, it's tough to be a teacher right now, but there's lots of rewards too. What would you like to leave us with? Um, regarding this project and just the, the, the excitement of being a teacher right now, not all the negativity that you sometimes hear. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, well, I'm excited about all these opportunities for partnerships. Yeah. So Black Hill State, um, we have partnerships within the university between the School of Education and the School of Natural Sciences and the School of Mathematics and Social Sciences. But we also have lots of partnerships with school districts. We've been working with fantastic teachers in the 24 years that I've been here. I just the my best teachers have continued to be K-12 teachers from our area who help me understand what is most needed in K-12 classrooms. We partner strongly with the um, Sanford Underground Research Facility, their education and outreach team is fantastic. And so working with strong educators who are already in the field to help us understand how, wh- how we can better prepare the next generation of teachers, that's what I'm most excited about and feel like we have tons of promise and potential.
0: Dr. Ben Saylor is professor at Black Hill State University and director of South Dakota's Center for the Advancement of Math and Science Education, um, starting a new planning and discovery process funded by the National Science Foundation. Thank you so much for being here with us. We look forward to following where this leads in the days ahead.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: you're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A recent survey by the University of Chicago polled Americans on their personal financial and economic views, and the findings were a little mismatched. So our expert is here to break down some of those numbers. Rick Kaler is a financial therapist and wealth advisor. He is based in the Black Hills. He's an international leader in the financial therapy movement, and he's with me now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Hey Rick, welcome back.
3: Hey, good to be here, Lori.
0: You have this new column that says the economy
3: is bad, but not for me. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. <laughs> well, I <you> kind of, <laughs> of summed up all sorts of statistical data. I was like, yeah. how are we going to get through this? <laughs> we can just chat yeah. about whatever. How you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's just so fascinating that in this poll, 80% of people thought the economy is poor or not so good, 85. Percent think it's going to get worse. Yep, seventy-eight uh, percent worse for children, and yet over sixty percent say they're satisfied with where they are. Their financial situation's better, staying the same, um, and that the rising cost of living. Seventy-two percent say the rising cost of living is no concern, not a problem or minor.
0: See, this is just so brilliant because of all the work that you have done and all the conversations we've had over the years you know, part of me says, you know, some of this is my fault. Like, how many stories have we had about the economy, you know, being struggle struggling? And does that really reflect people's um, reality? Or are we in the media painting a picture that's not quite accurate? How many people have we talked to individually? And so just broadly speaking, this whole idea of how emotional this, these, our perception of the economy is in the first place. Like, we are driven by how it feels, not necessarily the stats
3: that we read in the Wall Street Journal. Yes. So should I interview you?
0: <laughs> we could. You know what? I had a weekend, Rick. We could have some good... <laughs> 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 this weekend, I well, actually said the word. Rick Kaler says 90% of these decisions are emotional. So we're going to wait to make the decision and just talk about how this feels yeah. for a while. And yeah, everybody yeah, looks at me and says, hmm... <laughs> <laughs>
3: what? what <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, is that the, the economy's not in a recession. You'd think no. with 80 85 percent of people saying things are terrible, we'd be in recession, we're not. Job growth is solid um, and unemployment is hovering around the lowest rate since 1969. <laughs> so yet yeah, what is going on? Yeah. And I have to conclude, as you've already concluded, (laughs) that it's emotional, right? And I wonder, I mean, I haven't had time to unpack this. I don't know if I did a podcast on this or not, but, you know, what's going on, and I think you hit on it, is I think it has to do with the media diet and or the politicians that a person is uh, aligned with. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... Typically, politicians will tell you how bad things are, Uh, and that happens in every cycle, and it happens with both parties. You know, if you're the party out of control, then things are terrible. (laughs) It doesn't (laughs) matter who you are. Um, And given the polarization that we have in the U.S., I have to think— that this view of how bad things are in the economy has to do more with the view of the state of the country, obviously, than their own personal financial situation, which let's just say two-thirds say it's 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 better or the same. Yeah, not doing too bad. How much do you think this has to do with stuff
0: and, like, standard of living? Um the things that we have that our parents... I mean, I always think about this when people who are younger than I am buy houses, and their standard for what is a house that is worth their investment is just so drastically different from when I first bought a house and certainly way different than when my parents bought a house. And I'm just wondering how much of our self-perception is based on our our quality of life,
3: which is really pretty high for most South Dakotans. Well, that's... Mm that that's a really great point because the lowest one percent uh, economically in the united states are are at the 68th percentile globally mm. in fact i think our lowest one percent typically are better off than some of the richest people in countries like india et etc so uh and i could be wrong on that but i I'm, I'm right in some context. So we don't have a comparison globally. We have just a comparison with our neighbors, with our parents, with other people. And I can certainly feel poor poor, off, not well off if I'm comparing myself to Elon Musk or, or, uh, you know, some of the ultra billionaires. I don't, I don't, think that's what most people are doing. But they certainly can compare themselves to their neighbors and their friends.
0: On the other hand, I'm reading the Poverty by America book, which is fairly new. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the the author's name right now, but he's the head of the eviction lab at Princeton. And The Gap, his name is Matthew Desmond. Thank you, producers. Um, Matthew Desmond's Poverty by America book. The statistics are shocking. It might give the wrong impression to say, "Well, our poor people are better off than the poor people in India," when you can't. There is no American dream left for so many people, and the systemic barriers are so baked in. So, talk about that just a little bit. What does that bring up for you?
3: There, there's an article, ironically enough, in uh, today's. who are New York Times, mm-hmm. and it talks about how the GDP of the United States has grown, we're way above Germany, France, and Japan. It, it gives all of these very positive uh, comparisons and why the U.S. is still twenty-five percent of the world's economy. That hasn't changed. Da 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 da. And then they bring out the fact that household in, median household income has only risen seven percent for the for. Um, uh, most people, but 41% for the top 0.1%. Mm-hmm. So it is a real thing that the income gap has grown in the U.S. The last time I checked, we were back to where we were, say, in the 20s. It's not like it's all t- at an all-time high, but it's matching, I believe, an all-time high.
0: We're in a gilded age. Yeah. <laughs> the robber barons went. have returned.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so... So that is part of the disconnect. We can look at ourselves in in a macro level, but then when we look at micro level, there's still some disconnect. And the polling that was done uh, doesn't answer that or speak to it when two-thirds of Americans are saying, yeah, I'm great. Mm -hmm. And 80% 80 are saying, no, things are terrible. (laughs) Things are terrible. But I'm wondering, too,
0: if this is um, self-delusional. Can you think, I mean, if you work, I guess here's my specific question. Have you worked with clients who thought they were doing a heck of a lot better than they actually were? And they needed to have things (laughs) pointed out like, hey, that debt you're carrying is actually way more dangerous to you than you realize it yet. Is
3: that... I refer to those as overspenders.
0: Well, there we go. <laughs> We're back
3: to the foundations
0: of Rick Keller's work.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have clients that are maintaining a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle they can't uh, completely afford. Mm-hmm. And there's a point in time that they're going to uh, run out of money if changes aren't made. And I, I would say I have more clients that could uh, afford a lifestyle two to three times what they're living, but they're the scourges. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. I mean that that they have a frugality mindset that doesn't allow them to enjoy their wealth. Right. To get fact, to I f- told one recently, I said, you know, money was made to be spent. And they looked at me as if I was a Martian. No, sir. That is not. <laughs> like this is
0: coming from you? <laughs> You're supposed to be my wealth advisor. Were <laughs> they in the state it, legislature by chance? Oh, <laughs> uh, I cannot <laughs> disclose that information. <laughs> we have
3: strict privacy rules. <laughs>
0: But we have this sort of ongoing conversation about what it means to be fiscally responsible, whether that's from a political party standpoint or whether that's from uh, here's how we do things in South Dakota to whether it's here's how we do things in our family. Um, What kind of money beliefs does somebody have if when their financial advisor says money was made to be spent and they think that is completely um, a new concept. What what money
3: beliefs are, are you telling yourself? If well, you heard that, and, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, that's the money vigilant category of money scripts.
2: Yeah,
3: um, we got four categories: money avoidant, money status, money worship, money vigilant. And the vigilants tend to have more money, not in every case, because money is not to be spent. Yeah, fun is not affordable. It's it's not part of my language. Debt is. No evil off the table. Uh, And these folks typically have a lot of anxiety around money. Mm -hmm. So when they hear me say money's to be uh, spent, um, not put in context, they probably want to find another financial advisor. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when my client is, um, uh, say, money status, um, they love that. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. That's what I've been doing. been Let's doing do it more. right all this time. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> but ultimately, huh. we've talked before how money is to support uh, our quest for meaning. Yeah. How can it support our quest for meaning if it's locked up and not touched? Now, I'm not saying in the wealth accumulation years. Um, but there's a balance, right, in all of this. It's and it and it, when we decide not to work for an income anymore, it has got to be spent. It's got to support yeah. our quest for meaning. Yeah. All right, so I
0: just want to let listeners know one of the books that uh, Rick Kaler wrote is called The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. So if the Scrooge reference is intriguing to you, go pick that up and uh, read more about that. Rick Kaler's on our show often, but you can find his weekly columns online, and we'll put links up to that on our website as well. Rick, thank you a spoiler alert.
3: Yeah. Reading that book could destroy your vision of a Christmas
0: character. <laughs> Be prepared. Read it and say April or May, not necessarily in November or December. All right. <laughs> hey, Rick, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Take care. Let's take a moment now for an unexpected fluttering of wings. On this day in 2008, a monarch butterfly migration report included an early spring sighting of a monarch butterfly in Sioux Falls. The sighting was notable as the larger migration of monarchs from Mexico was still several hundred miles to the south. The website Journey North proclaimed, what a week. The site collects observations on the monarch butterfly's migration to northern latitudes. The site said, according to observers, the monarchs moved into six new states and a most remarkable sighting was reported from Sioux Falls. The monarch was spotted by an experienced monarch tagger who saw the butterfly outside his office window only 15 feet away. The sighting was more than 300 miles north of the monarchs that just appeared in Missouri and Kansas. A few days earlier, an observation was made by monarch expert Dr. Chip Taylor. He reported the first monarch in Lawrence, Kansas, and added, This spring is the first time that I can recall the monarchs being ahead of the milkweed. Milkweed is key to monarch butterfly habitat, as it is the only food a monarch larva eats. Journey North also reported a very early monarch was seen on April 11th in New Jersey, As for the sighting in Sioux Falls, maps show there were several days with weather that could account for the early appearance. There were strong south winds that carried warm air northward across the Great Plains and across the Canadian border. It is speculated that a monarch may have rode the winds north. Though what prompted the early appearance is not known, it was on this day in 2008, a monarch butterfly was spotted in Sioux Falls, weeks ahead of its typical migration to the upper Midwest. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Dr. Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, earlier in the hour, we talked with a Black Hills State University professor about how he's working to address an educational issue in the university level. Now let's switch gears to a few issues that go back to elementary school and how we teach reading. Natalie Wexler is an education writer and the author of the book, The Knowledge Gap the hidden cause of America's broken education system and how to fix it. She joins me now on the phone. Natalie Wexler, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Education and how we teach social studies, how we teach math, how we teach reading is such a hot topic, and people are getting more worked up over it. But you found a lot of positivity in this book, so let's start with the innovation of teachers who are working very hard to assess problems and come up with whole new solutions.
4: Well, there is some positive stuff going on now as teachers are beginning to realize, and administrators too, that the way we've approached reading instruction hasn't really lined up with what science tells us about what will work. And one part of that is teaching kids, you know, just how to read individual words and uh, we need systematic phonics for that. But a lot more time is actually spent on trying to help kids understand the text they're, they're reading or prepare them to understand more complex text. And that the way we've been approaching that for many years now doesn't line up with science. It's focused on Comprehension, as though it were just a set of skills that you can teach directly, like finding the main idea, the kinds of things that seem to be assessed by standardized reading tests. But science has been indicating, and more and more teachers are realizing, that that's not really what goes into reading comprehension. It's much more dependent on the reader's knowledge knowledge of the topic or general academic knowledge and vocabulary, knowledge of complex syntax, sentence structure. And so what is beginning to happen is in many places in the country, schools, teachers are, are switching away from a kind of curriculum that had a skill of the week, a comprehension skill of the week, like making inferences, and kids would just try to practice that on texts on random topics. And the idea wasn't for them to acquire any particular knowledge about anything, but just to get good at this supposed skill. And what they're replacing them with are uh, curricula that really immerse kids in deep, rich content in social studies, science, the arts and literature. And teachers are finding that not only are kids learning a lot more, um, but they're a lot more engaged
0: and they enjoy it a lot more. Yeah. I remember in kindergarten, my daughter's in college now, but the kindergarten teacher was very um, skilled at field trip Planning. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. remember going to volunteer to do some field trips. And we went to a bakery and rolled bread. And we went to the library and the place where they make school lunches. And I asked her, went to the local grocery store. And her point was, some of these kids have never been to any of these places. There's a huge gap in what they come to me knowing um, some of them don't mm-hmm. know where bread comes from. How does that fit into the research that you heard, the life experience of just like getting out and getting your hands in the dough, as it were?
4: Yeah, well, part of it is limited life experiences. But another important part is limited access to academic kinds of knowledge and vocabulary. And both of yeah. these things are important. And we have, you know, uh, and it. An equity problem in both respects, and this the standard approach focusing on these skills, not really trying to build kids' knowledge of the world, whether it's experiential or reading aloud to them. Um, this is really has an uneven impact on kids because some kids, of course, do have more experience of the world; they they have been exposed to more, the, the, you know, academic knowledge. Their parents maybe have read books to them, taken them on trips, and other kids. You know, usually kids with less highly educated parents have not had those advantages, but there's a lot that school can do to help level that play- playing field by giving all children access to ex- experiences, field trips like the ones you were talking about, and also knowledge of history and science through engaging real alouds and class discussions.
0: Yeah, tell me a little bit what some of the fixes are. What are you seeing people push in which direction and how does it intersect with standardized testing?
4: Well, it's um, so the best approach is for a school or a district to adopt a kind of curriculum that builds knowledge in a logical sequence. Individual teachers can do something, but they can't control this whole process of building knowledge that extends across school years. And by the same token, because building knowledge is this gradual cumulative process, you sometimes don't see results on standardized tests right away because those tests, they have passages, reading passages on random topics, they're not tied to any particular body of knowledge. So kids might have learned a lot about, you know, the human digestive system or whatever, but the test passages on the Inuit. And you eventually, if you give kids a, exposure to a lot of topics, they will acquire this critical mass of academic vocabulary that will enable them to understand those passages on random topics, on reading tests. And and you, we have now evidence that after three or four years, you are likely to see a, a, a rising in standardized test scores, but it doesn't happen right away.
0: Yeah. Well, the book is called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. My guest has been Natalie Wexler. There's so much in here. I especially appreciate how you sat with teachers and really watched their methodology and unpacked it step-by-step. Fascinating stuff. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you,
4: Thank you, Lori. It was a pleasure.
0: Joshua Bennett is an award-winning poet, author, and professor of English. You've heard him on the show before talking about his poetry collection, Ode, and his 2021 Whiting Award win. Well, in honor of National Poetry Month, we are revisiting a conversation we had with him two years ago. We discussed how his work stands at the crossroads of lyrical poetry and scholarly history. Take a listen and keep your ears peeled as you might just hear Joshua back on In the Moment soon.
5: It's complicated, you know. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I was told pretty directly that I needed to stop writing poems or no one would take me seriously as a literary scholar. So I think part of what's been so astonishing um, about the past, what, I mean, I guess it's been about five years, right, since I I finished graduate school, uh, has been that actually the poetry at every turn has helped electrify the prose. You know, that doing literary criticism, doing the work of cultural history, uh, I'm just not even sure how it would be possible for me if I weren't always reading and listening to poems, right? I mean, like you said, the, the prose work is about poetry, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I tried to write, you know, the book that came out of Harvard University Press, Being Property Once Myself. I tried to write it about novels, but if you look at the chapters, there's always poetry in there. Right? either the poetry is working um, at the level of an epigraph or there are poems bookending my close reading of these canonical african-american novels and so poetry is it's just always with me even in the prose and i, I think i'm just quite taken uh with I guess the fact that poems come to us in moments where it seems like language fails right we, we recite poetry at funerals we recite poetry at weddings we recite poetry when children are born Right. Uh, Or at least my my wife and I did. You know, that was an occasion for for poetry. And so whenever I turn to the prose, I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I take that magic, that incredibly capacious sense of human possibility that I experience when I hear a poem or even when I'm in the midst of reciting one on stage? And how do I put that into the prose? As my mentor, Imani Perry, you know, once instructed me, how do I commit to the beautiful sentence? And Mm so that's what I've tried to do, you know, in my, my work nonfiction so far.
0: Tell me a little bit about your earliest memories of what you now think as of as spoken word. Like when you were a child, you might not have thought of that, oh, that's spoken word, but the, the language that you were hearing was inspiring you and you still carry it with you today. And now you understand its influence more richly.
5: Sure. I mean, that would have to be uh, in the the Black Baptist and Pentecostal churches in my youth, <laughs> you know, seeing uh, pastors deliver these incredible sermons. And even as I don't think I had a full sense of the kind of rhetorical brilliance on display, I did see how people reacted to it. Mm -hmm. I saw people cartwheel and shout and fall out. I heard my mother say, you know, that's my word for the week. And the idea that language was something you could carry with you um, as a kind of armor, as a companion, right? That it it would stick with you and protect you from a a sort of violent world that misunderstood you at every turn, I think that was quite powerful, right? And I wanted to know, uh, on the one hand, like how to tap into something like that, right? How to create that effect with language. Um, But but I think I also was just really committed to the idea that language could create these occasions for gathering, right? So I didn't discover Poetry Slam uh, until, you know, I think I was about 13 or 14 years old. It was in Yonkers Public Library, Uh, There was a poetry slam, and and my mom made me get up and and do a poem, the one poem I had memorized at that point. (laughs) And uh, I got second place. You know, she still has the trophy. And (laughs) it was this incredible moment, you know, because I've always had, you know, pretty bad stage fright. But my mom told me, you know, a gift is to be shared. And so to this day, that's how I think about my uh, practice as a performance artist, right? Like it's about sharing and hoping that my particular story lands with someone else and helps them work through whatever they're working through.
0: Yeah, and then you ha- also have this story also with your mother and the beauty shop and these women um, sort of encouraging you to understand the individual word and language in a very rewarding way as well. Tell us a little bit about that memory, please.
5: Wow, Laura, this is so well-researched. I'm <laughs> deeply moved <laughs> and feel and feel seen. Yeah, I mean, so in my grandmother's salon, you know, my grandmother at, at one point, she owned and operated sort of three salons in, in Harlem. And, and the one I, I grew up in, you know, I, me and my big sister, we would get paid a dollar uh, when we would spell words that were longer than, than three syllables. Right. So, you know, recalcitrance, loquacious mouth These are some of my my favorite kind of go-to words in the early days. I mean, no small part because a, a, a dollar, when you're a, a four-year-old boy, I mean, that, you can do so much with that. You, you know how many kind of Swedish fish you could buy with a dollar? I mean, <laughs> a, a great deal. So,
0: mm.
5: and you can get a drink too, you know? And so that that was this incredible environment in which I came to understand, and not just at a monetary level, right? But the value of education and what it meant to commit to study right? Because I would go home and just pour over the dictionary, right? I was trying to create this reservoir of words that I could pull from at any time. And this is long before I had any dreams of becoming a a literary scholar, right? I wasn't a self-identified poet, at least, you know, though I think I was practicing the thing in real time. And so those kind of social environments, they made all the difference for me um, as a child. Do you still...
0: Discover a new word and uh, unpack a, a word in a new way. As advanced as you are academically and as a per- performer and as a writer, do you still come across things and go, "Wow, language is fantastic"?
5: Oh, every single day, yeah. you know. And a, and a lot of that I think is from spending time with my son. uh You know, his mother's generous enough to let me have the the mornings with him, the early mornings. You know, and the sun is just rising and. Uh, in addition to sort of dancing the music together and, you know, kicking it and I'll eat my breakfast. He eats his breakfast first. And we freestyle. Right. And uh, <laughs> I guess in those early days, we're trying to find things that rhyme with August. I was sort of yes. taken aback by the the wealth of words that came to me, right? Like flawless, lawless, raucous, florist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think finding that kind of sequence was interesting because you need, you know, phrases, right? So I would think about, my son shining like, you know, the inside of a florist shop. And there are just all sorts of new uh, poems and, and lines that, that have come to me, I think, since um, since he was born. So I've only written, really, I want to say two and a half poems uh, yeah. <laughs> since he was born. So much of my time, you know, thankfully, it's just with him, you know, it's, it's um it's trying to like cultivate this, this bond with this, this small boy. You had my facial expressions. I mean, it's quite surreal. So yeah. to answer your question. I see language, new language all around me all the
0: time. Okay. So here's what I'm just dying to know when you're in that moment. So, okay, you've come to this place where you, you know, are not no longer defining yourself only by the work that you put in the world. Like what's the next collection going to be? You're, you know, taking in time with your son and you're just being present with him but yet you are putting these words and this poetry into the world with an audience of two. Do you try to go write them down so that you have them later? Or is that enough in that moment to just speak those words into the world with your boy?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're synced up in this way, right? It's just, it goes to the air, you know, and it's just for me and him, which is this incredible thing um, that's a bit unprecedented for me. I mean, I I started off freestyling with my big sister and then freestyle ciphers were a big part of, um, you know, my time in undergrad and, and even after, but there's something in particular about the poem that's just for August and just in that moment. And then we'll make a new one the next day. It, yeah. it feels like this wonderful meditation on abundance. Like hopefully we'll never run out, you know, and, and we have all these, these memories, you know, we'll be able to keep as, as uh, he gets older and, and hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be exchanging poems soon and, and going back and forth and, it'll be this gift that I hope I can uh, share with him the same way my big sister shared it with me. Hmm.
0: Poems come to us in moments when language fails. Thank you, Joshua Bennett. He's got a new book coming out. We've invited him to join us in May, I believe. So we're going to bring you poetry throughout this week as we wrap up national poetry month, but why stop in April? Our producers are already scheduling poets for conversations in May. On tomorrow's In the Moment, why do we talk the way we talk today? How will we talk tomorrow? And good grief, how will our kids talk in the days ahead? Let's meet a linguist with a new book. It's called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good and Bad in English. And we've got South Dakota's Poetry Out Loud champion with us. Meet Grace Powell. That is our show for today from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. We hope that it served you. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.